0: Please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Psalms. We are currently studying Psalm 78. In Psalm 78, Asaph invites his hearers, as A.F. Kirkpatrick says, to draw a lesson of warning for themselves from the past history of the nation. Again and again, Israel had forgotten the great works which Jehovah had done for them and with base ingratitude and short-minded faithlessness had rebelled against his government or tempted him by distrust of his goodness. The psalmist holds up the picture to his contemporaries in the hope that they might be taught to avoid repeating the sins of their forefathers. And so as we come today to the last section of the psalm, the second survey of God's faithfulness and mercy to Israel, and there, that is Israel's unfaithfulness and sin, I want you to turn to verse 42. For in verses 42 to 64, we have this second survey. And On the back of your bulletin there is a... um, an outline, a guide for the psalm here. We have two surveys in the psalm, the first one being in verses 12 through 41, and we just completed that last week, and now we want to look at the second survey here this morning, verses 42 to 64. You see, Asaph, the author of this psalm, is intent on teaching... The lesson of Israel's history to his generation. And because of his intent, he repeats himself. He uses different words, emphasizes some different things. But he again goes over the history of Israel, beginning at their deliverance from Egypt. Because he wants to make sure that his hearers, and that includes us, get the message. Learn the lesson are humbled and sobered by the history of Israel and are determined not to repeat it. That's his hope. That's his purpose. Now, our second survey differs from the first in several ways. I'll mention two of them. It focuses on the plagues that the Lord visited on Egypt when he brought them out of their Egyptian slavery. In the first survey... In verses 12 to 13, he just spoke about the deliverance. But in this second survey, he looks at the plagues and speaks of them and God's might and power, his signs and wonders that were displayed before Israel in those plagues. And it was through them he brought Israel deliverance through his mighty power. Secondly, it goes beyond the time of the first survey in terms of the history of Israel, and takes us up to Israel in the land of Canaan. The last time, or the last survey, we found them left wandering in the wilderness. But in this survey, he brings us from Egypt to the land of Canaan, and even to the conquering of the land. But the survey is similar to the first in that it records Israel's unbelief, unfaithfulness, and their sin, in spite of all that the Lord had done for them. Like we said in our introduction, that's the enigma of history, the riddle of Israel's history. How could it be that a people who were so markedly blessed by God, who experienced signs and wonders that have not been experienced by any people before or since, and yet, how did they repay God's goodness and faithfulness? With rebellion. That's what we uh, think Asaph is talking about when he says, I'm going to go over Israel's history. I'm going to open up my mouth in a parable. I'm going to utter dark sayings or enigmas of old. And that's the thing that still puzzles us. But does it ever puzzle us that we are unfaithful to our God, that we repay his covenant mercies, that we show our gratitude for the blood of Christ by disobedience and sin. So maybe it's not all that hard to understand if we think about it. But we are to think about it so that we learn from it, Israel's history, And that we compare it with our own history. That was the idea of a parable, as I talked about in our introductory sermon. Open my mouth in a parable. I'm going to give a comparison here, because that's what a parable basically is. You know, Jesus' parables, he compared the kingdom of God is like unto a woman who lost her coin and searched and searched. See, it's a comparison. And as I said, the comparison here is the comparison between Israel. And us. We're going to look at their history so that we can learn from it and then compare our circumstances, our history with theirs. And the goal is that our history will not be like theirs. By looking at theirs, we will be warned to not be like them. That's one of the things that is said explicitly here in verse 8. When he talks about teaching this history one generation teaching the next, Asaph teaching his generation. Why? That they might not be as their fathers. A stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. So in pursuit of that, we now come to hear and consider Asaph's Second survey of the history of Israel. Now in verses 42 to 54, we see how the Lord delivered Israel from Egypt. And that's a repeat. As you look at your outline there, that's exactly how he started the history before. But he's going to emphasize, as I said, some different things. So let me read those verses. They remembered not his hand, nor the day when he delivered them from the enemy, how he had wrought his signs in Egypt and his wonders in the field of Zoan, and had turned their rivers into blood and their floods that they, might, they could not drink. He sent divers sorts of flies among them. And of course, the them here, are the Egyptians. He sent divers sorts of flies among them which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave also their increase unto the caterpillar and their labor unto the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamore trees with frost. He gave up their cattle also to the hail and their flocks to hot thunderbolts. He cast upon them the fierceness of his anger, wrath and indignation and trouble by sending evil angels among them. He made a way to his anger. He spared not their soul from death. But gave their life over to the pestilence and smote all the firstborn in Egypt, the chief of their strength in the tabernacle of Ham, but made his own people to go forth like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock and led them on safely so that they feared not. But the sea overwhelmed their enemies. What a contrast between what he did to the Egyptians and what he did for his people. These, these marvelous uh, things that he did for his people that were prefaced by these awful things that he did to the Egyptians. His, we, see, we see this mercy of God in stark contrast to how he judged the Egyptians. What a merciful God He was to Israel, whom he had chosen in Abraham. Now, verse 42 is transitional here to this new section. It's like in verse 11, where it says, Marvelous things did he in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan," And they did not remember those things verse 43 how he had wrought his signs in Egypt and his wonders in the field of Zoan Now these verses verse 42 and the, and the one that we saw previous there in verse 11 emphasizes that one of the chief causes of Israel's unfaithfulness and unbelief was due to their forgetfulness of what God had done for them They forgot they didn't remember the forgetfulness of the people of God, I think, and this includes us, has two components, two ways in which it can happen. Now, the first thing is that our forgetfulness is that the things God has done for us just passes out of our minds, which is not conscious of it. We're not thinking of it; It's just gone. It's not retained in the consciousness or the memory, at least not active, in the active consciousness. And sometimes that happens. We just completely forget what God did. Israel did. So do we. How many things has God done for you or for myself in the past, good deeds, merciful deeds, I've completely forgot about? I'm ashamed to, to think how many I forgot about. How many biblical texts, biblical doctrines you've studied? You've just forgotten them. That's one of the problems. The other way that we can forget, though, is that the significance of what God has done in the past is not brought forward to be applied to the present or the future. In other words, the revelation of God's goodness and power in previous acts has no real bearing on our minds on the present circumstances. In other words, we remember things he did. We remember the doctrines of Scripture. We remember the cross of Calvary. It's not that we forgot about the cross. We just don't apply it. And so it's not actively used. To remember in the Scripture always has the idea of thinking on something so that it affects how you act in the present. When God remembered Noah, as it says in the flood account, it wasn't, oh, oh, Noah, boy, I forgot about him. I need to go down and help that guy. Is that what it means? No, it's the Hebrew way of saying he remembered in that he intervened actively. Mm. He never forgot him, but the remembrance was that he called it to his mind in the sense that now he would act in the present. So think of what God has done for us, and we do this all the time. We don't make the... One-for-one equation. God did this in the past, and I'm going to apply that as he did that, as he promises this, as he did this in Christ, that that, what he did there, he can do it here. And so we lay hold of that past event from Scripture or a past event in our life, and we make it a present reality to guide us today or to give us hope for tomorrow. So forgetfulness is a great problem in those two ways because some people, well, I don't forget about... Uh, Christ, and I don't forget about But do you make it a living reality, a memory that brings it into the present so you can apply it now? That's, what, that's the challenge. And so if Israel might have remembered, oh, yeah, I remember going through the Red Sea. It's hard to believe that any of them forgot that. And yet when they got to Kadesh Barnea and they faced the giants in Canaan, they didn't apply what they had experienced. It wasn't a conscious memory that directed their present and future course. And so they rebelled. If God could overturn the mightiest nation on earth, the superpower of its day, Egypt, and, and bury their army in the waters of the Red Sea, surely he can take care of the Canaanites who were uh, subject to Egypt. Not in the sense that Egypt ruled over them, but there was, they, they were fearful of Egypt and Egypt... Often would go and tax them and those type of things. But they didn't apply it to their circumstances. That's the problem. They forgot. In that way, they didn't make it a present reality. So, but that takes some meditation to do that. We need to think thoughts that are purposeful, prayerful, and make the equations of faith. Lord, you did this here. That means I know you can do it here. And you can work. The problem was, verse 42, they remembered not his hand. The day when he delivered them from the enemy. And now in verse 43, we go on to the next uh, description of what God did, how he did deliver them, how he wrought in his signs in Egypt. And his wonders in the field of Zoan. We noted earlier that Zoan refers to the region uh, of Goshen. In other words, these signs were done in Egypt, but they were very much known and seen in Goshen or in Zoan. Israel saw them. He, they knew of them. It was a, uh, a mighty public battle between the gods of Egypt and the God of Israel. This was not done in a corner. Israel knew they saw. And that's why it speaks about his signs and wonders that he did. Signs and wonders. This is a common biblical pairing, signs and wonders. You find it in Old and many times as well in the New Testament. And they're always used in reference to divine miracles. Miracles. Not providential acts, but miraculous acts. Ones that cannot be explained by natural laws and processes, but miracles. These miracles are called in the Bible signs and wonders. First of all, they're signs because they point beyond themselves. First of all, to the glory and the greatness of God, and secondly, to authenticate his messengers. Paul speaks about the signs and wonders that were done by the apostles. Because God was authenticating the apostolic preaching. New revelation was being given. The new covenant was being established and explained. And God, through wonders, signified these messengers as being his messengers. They were his mouthpiece. So they're signs. They point beyond themselves. First of all, to the glory and the greatness of God. And secondly, to the authenticity of his messengers. They are wonders in that they cause awe and astonishment to those who behold them. They are of such a nature that we are filled. The beholders are filled with with what these two words I keep coming back to are awe and astonishment. Not just surprise, but something beyond that. Not something unusual, but something miraculous, like the parting of the Red Sea. And they caused this because there were extraordinary displays of God's power, his direct intervention in the affairs of men. And what God did, we're told here, to the Egyptians can only be classified by, as signs and wonders. They were signs to the people of Israel and also signs to Pharaoh and his court and his people. They spoke of the wonder and majesty of the Lord when Moses went and he said, uh, Yahweh has said, let my people go. Pharaoh said, who is Yahweh? That I should serve him. I don't know such a God, and I will not let Israel go. Well, he knew of such a God when the plagues were over. In a sense, the plagues answered Pharaoh's question Who is the Lord? As he was humbled to the dust, he saw who the Lord was. And there were wonders and signs and mighty works. What God did in Egypt is unprecedented. Nothing ever like it was done in Egypt's history again. Oh, there was many miracles, but nothing so concentrated and so amazing as that deliverance. Oh, they were delivered in battles. God did mighty things for them. Uh, he parted the Jordan River when they went into Canaan. The walls of Jericho fell down. So I don't mean that there weren't signs and wonders later. There were. This was unprecedented. And yet Israel repaid it all with unbelief and rebellion. That's what Asaph is driving home here. Israel forgot these mighty works. They are without excuse. They had witnessed with their own eyes, experienced their own persons these things, and yet they remembered not his hand, verse 42. Nor the day when he delivered them from the enemy, how he had brought his signs and Egypt and his wonders in the field of Zo. And now in verse 44, down through 51, he gives a little survey here of some of these wonders, the plagues. And we're not going to spend the time today to go over all the, these plagues and look at them in terms of their, their details. We're not going to go back and read the passages. In Exodus, that's just not our purpose here. I'm assuming that most of you, if not all of you, have some good familiarity with these plagues. There were 10 plagues that were visited upon the Egyptians. In this survey, Asaph only gives six of those plagues, perhaps seven. It depends on how you might interpret verse 48. But it seems uh, fair to say that he does six of the the, um, plagues, therefore four are left out. The question is, what does that mean? Well, what it means is, like the rest of this psalm, the purpose of Asaph is not to record every detail. When we look at the wilderness wanderings and he talked about Israel's rebellion at Kadesh Barnea, he didn't even mention the golden calf incident, which was one of the worst of all. They're I mean, Just fresh from making covenant with God. And here they are making idols and saying, these be thy gods that brought thee out of Egypt. So that wasn't mentioned. Does that mean it wasn't important? No, the purpose of the psalm here is not a detailed recounting. That's in the Pentateuch. That's in the books of history. It's a, it's a, it's a teaching psalm where he's giving surveys. So here, and for his purposes, it is enough to give a survey and include these plagues. doesn't mean that he's unaware of the others or that they weren't important. They all were. Uh, his, it's, his purpose here is thematic. God delivered them with a mighty hand. And he mentions some of those plagues. The first plague, verse 44, is the plague where the waters of Egypt were turned into blood. Turn the rivers into blood. Their floods they could not drink. By the way, Egypt uh, worshipped the Nile. Their lives depended upon the Nile. They lived in a dry and thirsty land where there was no water. Everything was dependent upon the Nile. They got their drinking water from there. They got their irrigation water. And if the Nile River did not flood every year over its banks and take it, the silt and the and the uh, rich soil to the floodplain and soak the earth. The Egyptians would starve. They worshipped Nile. God turns it into blood. In all these plagues, the, the, the gods that the Egyptians worship, the different gods are shown to be powerless. Verse 45 has two plagues mentioned, the plague of flies and the plague of frogs. By the way, these are recorded in Exodus 7 through Exodus 9, these plagues except for the 10th plague, which is in Exodus chapter 12. But you can read those. Just get, open your Bible, start reading Exodus 7 through 9, and you'll have the, the detailed account of these plagues. In verse 45, he sent divers of flies among them. This was the fourth plague. And the second plague, See, so they're not even in order in his giving it here. It's, it's just, this is thematic. He's putting them forward in a thematic way, this the, the flood of, or these flies, which by the way, the flies were not probably the the uh, anointing house fly, but loathsome flies that bit and their bites were like stings, mm-hmm. for which Egypt is infamous, you, know, you got a river and you got marshlands, you got some really nasty, nasty flies and they were covered with bites and welts and who knows what else. Then the frogs that came up. The frog was worshipped in Egypt, but they weren't worshipping. And by the time this was over, they hated frogs. They didn't want any more. God brought these frogs forth. Verse 46, we have a, a summary of the eighth plague the plague of locusts. He gave the, also their increase under the caterpillar and their labor under the locust. The worst plague of um, locusts that had ever hit Egypt. And they stripped the vegetation from their trees and from their fields. Extremely serious and devastating. Verse 47, and I think also verse 48, give this this very intense plague of hail and thunder and lightning and a massive storm, unprecedented. It says in Exodus that there had never been a storm like it before or ever again in Egypt. It says here that, he destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamore trees with frost, which the idea of frost there is like it's just a synonym for hail, frozen water. Frost is frozen water. It doesn't mean hoarfrost, but it's just it, it, the, the Hebrew has the idea of, of frozen uh, water like hail, huge hail. It was so intense that destroyed the crops and destroyed their trees. Sycamore tree was a very important tree in Egypt for their building and furniture and, interestingly, for their sarcophagi that they used for their bodies when they died. God destroyed all that. Their cattle also, were told in Exodus, were destroyed in the field. But this was an interesting one. Just uh, It strikes me as that Moses, when he went to Pharaoh, he warned him this was coming. And he said, if you want your cattle to live, get them undercover. And it said some of the Egyptians by now were starting to pay attention to Yahweh. And they heard about this, and they got him undercover. But others, like Pharaoh, hard and left him out, and they were all slaughtered. The hail was big enough, it was large enough that it hitting him, it killed him. But not only their their cattle, but also their sheep and their goats. That was the seventh plague. Uh, Verses 49 to 51 bring us to the tenth plague, the final plague. He cast upon them the fierceness of his anger, wrath, and indignation, and trouble by sending evil angels. And the word their angel means evil messengers, and this is, this is not to be taken literally that God sent demons, evil angels. The word evil here is the, the, the word, as we, we've talked about recently in, in Proverbs, it talks about evil here meaning calamity messengers that brought calamity to them. That's the idea. He made a way for his anger. He, he, he cleared the highway, as it were, took out all obstructions. There was nothing that could hold him back from the expression of his full wrath and anger in these plagues to be culminated in this tenth plague. He didn't spare now their souls from death. He had killed their uh, animals. He had destroyed their crops. But now he's going to touch their very lives and there would be a pestilence of sorts that would come upon them, and verse fifty-one would smite all the firstborn in Egypt. And the firstborn was known to be the chief of the strength of a, of a couple, and the man and his wife, their firstborn son, and was all going to be destroyed. And would take and he speaks here of Egypt in the parallelism as the tabernacles of Ham. For the Egyptians were descendants of Mitzrayim. In fact, that was their ancient name, Mitzrayim. That you look at in Genesis, in the table of nations, they were descendants of Ham, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. They were descendants of Ham. That's his destruction that he wrought upon them. Mighty miracles, mighty works, signs and wonders, pointing beyond themselves to his greatness and power, and also authenticating Moses and Aaron as his servants. Mighty things. And they, but here's what he said in the beginning. They didn't remember any of this. They forgot it. When the trials and testings came, they forgot it. They put it out of their minds. Or they, 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 they didn't see how it in any way applied today. Well, maybe he did it back then, but he can't do it today. That kind of thinking. But that's what he did to the Egyptians. But look what he did for his own people. He made his own people to go forth like sheep. And he guided them in the wilderness like a flock. Here's the beautiful biblical uh, image of God being a shepherd to his people. A shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. In the great Psalm 23, Jesus, in the Gospel of John, says that he is the good shepherd who giveth his life for the sheep. And he, when he puts them forth, he goes before them. Jesus is, is with us. But he was like a shepherd to them. He was a a avenging judge on the Egyptians who had oppressed his people and reduced them to slavery. He came with vengeance. But to his own people, he came like a shepherd to the sheep. He guided them through all the, the difficulties and dangers from the moment they left Egypt till the time they got to the promised land, which verse 454 speaks of. He led them on safely. He took care of all their needs So that they feared not. Or the idea being here so that they should not fear. Because we know there are accounts very much of their fear. Some have said that it was simply talking about the context of going through the Red Sea. Remember they were terrified when the Egyptians came. What shall we do? We should have stayed in Egypt. And then Moses said, fear not. Behold the salvation of your God. And the sea parted. And by the grace of God, they conquered their fears and walked through that. Can you imagine what it was like to walk through that? You know, any minute, if it failed, whatever was holding that water up, you would have been drenched, deluged, drowned, and killed in a moment. And so it's probably referring to that. They conquered their fears, and they went through, which was only the grace of God. But the sea overwhelmed their enemies, destroyed them. With the Egyptians, this mighty nation of the Egyptians. As I mentioned earlier, the Egyptians were the superpower of the Near East in those days. They were the wealthiest people. Their technology was unsurpassed, unequaled. Even today, we we, we marvel at the Egyptian technology and their buildings and the monuments and their temples and their, their idols as far as the technology displayed there, they still don't really understand how the pyramids were made. There's a lot of good uh, theories, but nobody was there. They don't know how they did it. An incredible feat. And yet they did. This is the people that were humbled to the dust by Yahweh. Furthermore, not only of their wealth, highest wealth, technology, they were the mightiest military in the world. In the ancient world, the, the, the chariot was the tank of the day. And they, they had many, many, many chariots. And they were irresistible against foot soldiers, who just trampled over by the horses and chariots. And they had many of them. Israel, had nothing. They didn't have any of this stuff. They were slave people. But God brought them out. But they forgot. All that. But there's more that he did. And we see this picked up now in verse 54. The first survey concentrated on Israel's 40 years of wandering. This survey goes right now to focus on their entrance into Canaan. And it says this. And he brought them to the border of his sanctuary, even to, his, to this mountain, which his right hand had purchased. He cast out the heathen also before them and divided them an inheritance by line and made the tribes of Israel to dwell in their tents. Two verses he summarizes the whole book of Joshua and the settlement of Israel in the land of Canaan and their life there. So he said this is a, this is a summary. This is a survey. And he says he brought them to the border of his sanctuary. Uh, under Moses, they came to the, 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 the fields of Moab, the plains of Moab on the east side of Jordan, where Moses spoke the book of Deuteronomy. The people, this new generation, rededicated themselves to the covenant. Then they went over under Joshua. He brought them to there. The next verse talks about how then they conquered the nations under Joshua in verse 55. Now, the border of the sanctuary refers, again, to the border of the promised land. His sanctuary was located in the promised land. It was located there in Zion in Jerusalem. His right hand had purchased this land for them. He had given it to them. The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof, and therefore he has the right of dividing the inheritance among the nations. The Canaanites were a wicked and brutal people. Uh, we see a, a, a foreview of those or a, a vision of those in the, the brutality and the wickedness and the de- degradation of the Sodomites and the Gomorites. Totally degraded. It's interesting, archaeology has revealed that in various things. They were completely given over to lust and depravity and child sacrifice and all kinds of unimaginable things. And God cast them out. Gave them 400 years to Repent as it were. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. But in 400 years, instead of repenting, they just hardened themselves in their depravity and God threw them out. The landlord kicked out the tenants and gave it to his people. It was all him, completely him. He cast them out. It wasn't Joshua or the greatness of the Israelites as soldiers. The Lord did it. It's emphatic. He cast them out. And divided the land as an inheritance. Divided up to the 12 tribes. By lot. By line. Line was the measuring line. And he made them to dwell there in their tents. And that's a biblical picture of prosperity and peace. Similar to the one about each man dwelling under his vine and his fig. This is what God did for them. Delivered them from the... Egyptian enemies, cast out the enemies in Canaan, these wicked and powerful peoples with strong-walled cities, cast them all out, overthrew them, gave them the inheritance. He gave them peace and prosperity. He gave them cities they did not build, wells they did not dig, vineyards they did not plant. Read the beautiful story in Deuteronomy as Moses points all this out through the Lord to them. God has been so good to them, rescued them, and Fulfilled his promise. They're in the promised land. And that phrase there that brought them to the border of his holy place. Some say this is perhaps the, the best verse we can find is finding out the idea of calling it the holy land. It was the holy land because it was God's sanctuary. Which of course means it's not the holy land anymore. It's Palestine. Israel was thrown out. They were cast out, and the Israel that's there today does not worship God. I have a niece who is involved with her husband in missionary work in Israel, and it's against the law to preach the gospel to another Jew. Unless they give you permission, then I guess you can. That's not a Christian nation. It's not a God-honoring, Yahweh-honoring nation. Someday all the lands of the earth will be his, including that one. I mean his in the sense of the people in them, recognizing him and worshiping him. And as it says in Romans chapter 11, and all Israel will be saved. The period of gospel prosperity. So that's a whole nother, whole nother thing. But cast out the heathen, gave him the land. They did all this. Now look at the next verse. Yet! Oh, no! Yet! Nevertheless, in spite of all this, believe it or not, here was how they repaid him. They tempted and provoked the Most High God. They kept not his testimonies. That's the history of Israel in the land now. That was where they were, the generation that came out of Egypt. That's how they were. We saw that in the first survey. This This is a summary of the people who lived in the land. This is how they lived. Just like their forefathers who came out of Egypt and how they rebelled in the wilderness, they rebelled in Canaan. They tempted God. They put him to the test. Can God, remember we saw that last week, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? He said the same thing. Can God send rain in Canaan? Can he defeat our enemies? And those kind of things. They tempted him. They put him to the test. They didn't believe him. To put God to the test and say, I don't believe you, God. I'm going to put this test up and you have to prove yourself to me in the way that I tell you to. And it was a, uh, a, a test, attempting of unbelief. By the way, wouldn't it, didn't, didn't um, Gideon sort of do something like that? No. He was not tempting the Lord and not testing the Lord. Gideon was a man just like you and I. Weak in faith. His heart was right. He wanted to serve the Lord, but he was weak. And so God, in his mercy, gave him a sign to strengthen his wavering heart. The Lord will do that for us. This was not a test. God, I don't know if you're God, and I don't know what you're saying to me is possible. So I'm going to put you to the test. And if you don't do this, I'm not going to do with you. That was not the spirit of Gideon when he said, Lord, Just, just, I need this assurance. My faith is weak. And I'm going to put this, uh, what was it called, a wool garment or something out and let it be wet with dew and the ground dry. And then it happened. I'm forgetting if I'm getting these mixed up. But it happened one way. And he said, well, you know, he was a good scientist. He said, well, better, let's change the properties here just to make sure there wasn't something natural at work here. And so tomorrow make the, the, the garment dry and the ground wet with dew. And that's exactly what happened. So he wasn't testing him. God was pleased with with his uh, his desire to have his faith strong to go out and do it. But by the way, there's a real slim dividing line between what Gideon did in testing God. So don't be quick to do Gideonite tests. And there's another reason why, in some respects, we don't need Gideonite tests. we have the whole Bible Gideon was in the times of judges all they had was the Pentateuch we have Christ and the New Testament so that's another reason why God was merciful to Gideon helped him there in that time and we know He didn't provoke him to anger but they did they did they provoked God to anger well verse 56 they provoked the most high they angered him They did things that angered God, drew out his holy indignation. And they did not keep his testimonies, meaning his laws. You know, the Bible uses the term testimony for the law of God because the law of God is the testimony of God himself as to his will. I now give testimony to you of the life you should live before me. So that's why they're called testimonies his word to us and they didn't keep them the god who had done all these things for them who had all these signs and wonders that they should have believed and not tempted or provoked but they should have just believed him kept what he said to do because he said if you do these things you'll be blessed but they didn't do it they didn't believe him so what they do they turned back turn back from the lord they dealt unfaithfully like their fathers. They were treacherous. They were unbelieving, just like their fathers who came out of Egypt. So were the ones who lived in Canaan. They were turned aside like a deceitful bow. What's that mean? Well, it's a bow that won't shoot straight. It's like a gun that you buy, and you cannot for the life of you to get it to shoot straight. There's a, there's a defect in it. It always bears to the right or left or up or down. That's what it means, a deceitful bow. They never, could, they never shot right. They just didn't work. And by the way, what, what, if you buy a bow and then you can't get it to work right, it always shoots the arrow off if you buy a gun or, or any kind of tool that it won't work. You get to buy the saw and it just won't cut right. You get frustrated. You get irritated. You're the owner and you bought this and you want it to be like it was. Well, God bought Israel. He brought them into the Canaan and they wouldn't do what they were called and designed to do to serve the Lord. So they provoked him to anger. And here's where we get to the very essence of their sin in the land. Idolatry and religious syncretism. They provoked God to anger with their high places. High places were, were areas where they set up altars to the, to the Canaanite gods on hills. That's why they were called high places. And they, they would set up these altars to Baal, Ashtoreth, and the like that's how they repaid God's goodness they forsook him and worshipped other gods and they moved him to jealousy with their graven images so that's a you can see the synonymous parallelism there jealousy is a is a godly and righteous emotion What is it expressed toward that which is yours and legitimately yours and yours only and someone else steals it or intrudes on it? We ought to be jealous. A man better be jealous for his wife. He better be jealous for his children and so on. So God was, uh, Israel, he had made them his, using this image, his bride. They were unfaithful and he was moved to jealousy. And so God was wroth. When all this came to his mind and attention, when he heard it, heard what? He heard them singing praises to Baal. When he heard them, Oh, Baal, help us. Oh, Baal. Remember the, uh, get the image of the Samara, Samaria um, contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And the prophets of Baal, they were Israelites. Oh, Baal, hear us. When God heard that, he was wroth. He he was disgusted. This idea of greatly abhorred is that of uh, a moral disgust over their actions and their behavior. He was disgusted with them. Fed up. So what did he do? He forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh and the tent which he placed among men and delivered his strength into captivity and his glory into the enemy's hands. He gave his people over also under the sword and was wroth with his inheritance. The fire consumed their young men and their maidens were not given to marriage. The priests fell by the sword and their widows made no lamentation. Here in this survey, what Asaph does is pulls out one incident and describes it from Israel's history as representative of how God dealt with his people when they were angry. And this was one that came from the earlier time of their history. It was, it was not in Judges, it was past Judges, but it's the story of what took place in the days of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. Just, just to show you that, go to 1 Samuel for a moment here. We have time to look quickly at this. First Samuel four. Remember the, remember the situation? The tabernacle was at Shiloh, which was in the land of Ephraim. Eli was the high priest, and he was a good man, but he was a weak man, and his, his sons were evil. they were very evil, and they were priests, and they were uh, taking of uh, the people's offerings for their own purposes. You when people came and would give an offering, part of the offering would be set back for them, and they would eat a feast before the Lord, rejoicing and worshiping in God. Well, uh, the sons came and says, I want that. And they it says they stuck their hooks in while the water was boiling in the cauldron. But they also laid with women at the gate of the tabernacle and temple, committed vile sexual acts of sin. And these were the priests. And lead. Uh, Eli tried to restrain him, but he didn't try hard enough. He should have disposed them, deposed them from their office. But the long and short of it is God was disgusted, as it says here in our passage. And so here's what it says in 1 Samuel 4. And the word of the Lord came, uh, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out against Philistines to battle and pitched besides Ebenezer, And the Philistines pitched an affix, And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines. And they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. And when the people were coming to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hands of our enemies. Good luck, Charm. So the people sent to Shiloh, that they might bring from thence the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, which dwelleth between the cherubims. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout, so that the earth rang again. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What meaneth the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? And they understood that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp. And the Philistines were afraid. For they said, God is among, or God has come into the camp. And they said, woe unto us, for there hath not been such a thing heretofore. Woe unto us, who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. So They had more faith in the Lord than the, the Israelites did, if you want to call it that. So here's what they say. Be strong and quit yourselves like men, O ye Philistines, that ye be not servants of the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Quit yourselves like men and fight. And the Philistines fought, and Israel was smitten. And they fled every man to his tent. And there was a very great slaughter for their fell of Israel, 30,000 footmen. And the ark of God was taken. And the two sons of Eli and Hophni and Phineas were slain. Now, keeping your finger there, if we turn back to our passage here, he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent which he placed among men, and delivered his strength into captivity. What was his strength? What was his glory that he gave to the enemy's hands? The ark. He was so disgusted with Israel that he allowed the Philistines to take his ark, his glory, into their possession. And by the way, it never went back to Shiloh again. God was done with Shiloh. It sat by the wayside, really, uh, until David restored it eventually to a tent in Jerusalem. But that's what it's talking about here. He placed it... um, he gave his glory into the enemy's hands. And we just read how he gave his people also over to the sword. 34,000, four in the one battle, I think it was, and 30 in the other. Slain, killed, annihilated by the, uh, the Philistines. They totally defeated Israel. And the people who lived, survivors, fled in terror. The fire consumed their young men. That is another image for the war and their maidens were not given to marriage. All those maidens, those young virgins who were hoping for husbands, they never married because the men would have been slaughtered. There were no husbands for them. This is God's anger being expressed. So not only did the men suffer, but the women did greatly. Their priests fell by the sword. Who were they? Eli, I mean not Eli, the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. We just read they were killed in that battle. See this he's taking this one incident as a as a representative incident of how God when he was angry let the enemies of the Lord crush him. Here they even took his ark and here priests were killed which by the way happened in the future when the Babylonians took Jerusalem and when the Romans took Jerusalem. These things were carried away, priests were slain. Their widows made no lamentation. The, 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 they were stunned. They were in such uh, state of mind that they, there was no normal mourning for the husbands who had died. So that's the picture. That's what he's talking. He's using that one incident of the destruction of the army of Israel, the captivity of the ark, and the slaughter of the, the two priests of the Lord. And that is what happened in kind throughout their history when they sinned. But verse 65 talks about how the Lord then turns and judges the Philistines. This is the way God works. He uses the enemies of Israel as the rod of his anger. And then when he's done with them, he gives them their deserts. Because they're wicked, they're idolaters. So that's what he does here. And it's like the Lord awakened as one out of sleep. In other words, how could the Lord let his people be defeated, his ark taken into captivity and placed in the temple of Dagon, which you can read about in, in 1 Samuel 5. Is he asleep? Well, it seemed like that, but he waked as, as one who was sleeping or as a mighty man shouting by the reason of the wine, the exhilaration of wine, and he smote his enemies. Even though the Philistines had had this great victory, God dealt with them. And this is, this is, <laughs> so he smote them in their hinder parts. And that's literal. Remember the story? He struck them with some strange disease that dealt with a hemorrhoid. Remember that? And so he put them to utter shame and reproach by a loathsome disease, the Philistines. Of course, the, he doesn't go into the fullness of the story. Remember how when it went into God, of Dagon it, it came in the morning, and it had, it had fallen over on its face, worshiping as it were before the Lord. Well, they set it back up. The next day, was, was, his head was broken off. And they said, "Well, we better move this." They moved in their place, and people got sick. Moved to this place, people died. Moved to this place, the emerald. You know all this, and they finally said, "We don't. We got to get this. We got to get rid of this thing." And they, they sent it back to Israel. this is what God did for them. that's, That's the story of the history. God would allow the Syrians to come against the Israelites and defeat them, and then he would rise in his anger and defeat them. The Assyrians came, took the northern kingdom captivity, but then God overthrew the Assyrians. Later on, past our history here, the Babylonians came, overthrew Judah. Then God overthrew Babylon. Now we come to the very end of our psalm. And the psalm ends on a wonderfully positive note. Remember the historical setting, at least the one as best we can understand for this psalm, is that these ver- this psalm was written by Asaph after the northern kingdom, the ten tribes that had broken away from uh, the house of David after Solomon's reign under Jeroboam they broke aside and they became the northern kingdom of Israel. And then there was the southern kingdom of Judah and Benjamin. Benjamin was very small and was pretty much incorporated into Judah and often it was just called the kingdom of Judah because of that fact. Well, the northern kingdom was very very evil. Jeroboam set up a rival religion. All the kings after him followed this. God eventually had had it like it says in the psalm here he just he was disgusted with the northern kingdom and he delivered them into captivity literal captivity the Assyrians came destroyed the northern kingdom took Samaria uh, killed the the leading men and took the people out of the land and moved them into other countries and scattered them throughout the earth of that day so he did to them This psalm was written after that fact, we believe. Asaph, who was a Levite in charge of the music in the south, in the southern kingdom of Judah, probably at the time of Hezekiah, wrote this. And he's saying to his people, learn from this. God has kept a remnant in us. He has been merciful to us. He chose us after he has refused the tabernacle of Joseph throughout history, and now he's finally refused it, and he sent him into captivity, let's not go the way of the northern kingdom. And so here's what he says. Moreover, he refused the tabernacle of Joseph, and he chose not the tribe of Ephraim, but chose the tribe of Judah, the Mount Zion which he loved, and he built his sanctuary like high places, or palaces, excuse me. Like the earth, which is he's established forever, he chose David as his servant and took him from the sheepfold, from following the ewes, great with young. He brought him to feed Jacob his people, and Israel was his inheritance. So he fed them according to the integrity of his heart, that is, David did, and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. This is the last part of the history. Look what God has done for us. Remember, he's talking about how he led them out of Egypt how he gave him the land of Canaan and then how people repaid him. He's trying to appeal to Judah here. Let's not repay the Lord like our fathers did for all their goodness. He's been so good to us, those of us who are of Judah. Yes, he's rejected the northern tribes, the tabernacle of Joseph and Ephraim. He's chosen us, though. We're his special tribe. He chose Zion, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, which is in our territory. He loves it. He's placed his sanctuary here. Solomon, his son, has built this magnificent temple. It's right here with us because he loves us and he's chosen us. He then gave us David to be our king. And from the line of David, all the kings of the south came. The northern kingdom had no sons of David. They came well, first of all, Jeroboam and maybe a generation or two, I don't remember. But then they were all just because there was assassinations and plots and coups. And the north was a mess. But Judah stayed under a Davidic ruler. God has been so good to us. And now, if, if we're correct, he chose David and he has in his place now a man like David called Hezekiah. We are blessed by this king. We've been blessed in so many ways. So what's the, what's the lesson? Let's not be like our forefathers. Let's not be like the people in the north, the northern kingdom of Israel. So that's his final plea. That's where the history places this psalm. What will Judah do? The question is, what will you and I do as we hear this history? And look at all of the blessings God has given us. We are the new Zion. We're the heavenly Jerusalem in its earthly form. We are the people of David. That is the son of David is our ruler. He's our king. We are part of the temple of the living God that he's building on earth. We're the church. He saved us. He's delivered. What will we do in response? Look at verse 70, uh, 70 through 72, because David was a type of Christ. This is Christ. He chose Christ. I'm going to put that in there, as his servant. He didn't take him from the sheepfold, but he took him from the carpenter's shop. And what did he do with Jesus? G- he brought him to feed us, his people. The Israel of God were his inheritance. Jesus is feeding us according to the integrity of his heart. He's guiding us by the skillfulness of his hands. But how are we going to repay him? That's you and I have to answer that question. You know, something that's quite tragic is Psalm seventy nine. Psalm of Asaph. O God, the heathen are come into thine inheritance. Thy holy temple they have defiled. They've laid Jerusalem on heaps. The dead bodies of thy servants they've given to meat under the fowls of heaven. The flesh of thy saints and the beasts of the earth, the blood of they shed like water round about Jerusalem. There's none to bury them. That's what happened. Judah didn't listen. And eventually, Psalm 79 had to be written. Now, whether this was by the same Asaph or whether it was by a son of his, we do not know. In fact, as I said in the beginning, we're not exactly sure who the ASAP is here. But isn't that tragic? Psalm 79 shows they didn't hear. They didn't listen. They became like their fathers. And so God had to judge them. Let us pray. Oh, God, teach us the lessons of Israel's history. Help us to hear your apostle Paul telling you us directly in 1 Corinthians 10, that that history was written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come, that we may not sin like they sinned. We might not be unfaithful like they were unfaithful. We might not chase idolatry like they chased idolatry. O oh Lord, help thy people. We fear and we tremble for the church of Jesus Christ in its apostasy and worldliness today. Even among your true people, there is, and that, we're not saying them out there and not including ourselves. We're lukewarm. We've made peace with the uh, world and its standards so that we can get along. We're not a separated people. We're not a holy people as we ought to be. And we see you right now using the enemies of the church to discipline us. And they have become the rod of your anger upon our backs unless we repent, it will become even more severe. So we pray, Lord, we who hear this psalm and we've studied it together will learn and profit from it. And that this psalm will be preached and known throughout your church as a warning. We may not be like our forefathers in Israel. But, Lord, we'll be faithful unto thee, and to Jesus Christ, the Son of David, our shepherd, who is guiding us with the integrity of his heart and the skillfulness of his hands. In Jesus' name, amen.